Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On April 19th, 10 storytellers shared their stories with our audience for our virtual slam. The theme of our April Story Slam was courage. We heard stories about facing and overcoming fear, learning about courage by observing others, and conscientious objection. In the end, our winner was first-time storyteller John Joyce with his story about a childhood skirmish. It hasn't been very often that I've been courageous in my life. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say probably my most courageous moment occurred way back when I was nine years old and I fought in the Great Hobo War. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and at that time, at the end of our street, there was still a cornfield and a woods. And along the edge of the woods was a railroad track. And right in the middle of the woods was this great big clearing shaded by massive oak trees. And throughout this clearing were all these empty oil drums. Well, neighborhood legend had it that that's where the hobos would gather at night. These hobos were cruel, menacing figures that supposedly got off the freight trains at night and gather around these oil drums, light fires in them, and roast their meat and keep warm. And God forbid they caught you trespassing on their territory. There were stories well documented how they captured little kids, beat them up, and roasted the soles of their feet on their oil drum fires. Mikey Gillinotti, he had a limp, and he claimed it was from having his foot roasted by the hobos. Well, one summer afternoon, there's like 20 of us neighborhood kids ranging in age from kindergarten to fifth grade, and we were in the woods uh, making plans to have a big war. Our weapons were crab apples, tomatoes we had borrowed from all the neighborhood gardens. I had a big load of green ones, rocks, corn cobs from the farmer's field. And we were devising our battle plans when suddenly they appeared out of nowhere. And we knew right away who they were, the hobos. <laughs> they were a frightening and savory bunch, three of them, all smoking cigarettes with greasy black hair. Uh, there's one huge one with one ear. They all had tattoos, and they all exuded evil. <laughs> now, in reality, they're probably just a trio of high school delinquents. But <laughs> the way they looked and the way they so threateningly emerged from the woods, our imaginations assured us they were indeed the long-dreaded and feared hobos. It, it's the hobos we all cried. I, I think it was Jimmy Steinmetz, who was the oldest of all of us, who issued the command, fire at will. And we threw at them everything we had, tomatoes and crab apples and corn and golf balls and, 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 and rocks. Blankety blank, you little blankers, yelled, yelled the hobos as they saw cover behind the trees. Charge, Jimmy yelled, and we all charged. We'll kill you, screamed the, the biggest one, and they came bounding toward us. Jimmy uh, quickly changed tactics. Retreat! <laughs> And we, we began to run like maniacs with the hobos in hot pursuit. It was a totally disorganized, desperate, exhilarating retreat. My heart was pumping with fear and excitement, hoping we could make it back to civilization before we were overtaken. Ideal it to Donnie Pepper's backyard, where we could make one last desperate stand next to the Pepper's rock pile. We made it, and we pummeled them with rocks. And they, in turn, remained entrenched on the edge of the woods, throwing rocks back. I looked over, and I saw Denny Cantwell get hit smack on the head with one. 
and he had one of those pulsating balloon-like bumps like he's seen cartoons. <laughs> the hobos, they were approaching closer and closer, and more and more of us were getting hit, but we bravely held our ground. And then, luckily, a rock hit the bottom of the Pepper's back screen door. Bam! And suddenly in the doorway appeared Mrs. Pepper. <laughs> what are you kids doing? Uh, uh, Mom, says Donnie, those hobos are attacking us. Donnie stuttered when he got all excited. You leave these kids alone or I'm calling the police. I mean it. Mrs. Pepper could look and sound pretty mean when she wanted to. Well, the hobos, they cursed Mrs. Pepper, and they cursed us, threatening to return and kill us one day as we courageously flipped in the bird. <laughs> but then they slowly drifted back into the depth of the woods, and they were never seen again. <laughs> that was the greatest day of our childhoods. <laughs> A day we reminisced about for years and years and years afterwards. Man, remember the great hobo war? It, it was our most memorable moment of glory. An unforgettable collective outpouring of courage and stupidity. <laughs> I was just nine years old. And you know, I've never been as courageous since. John earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Next up, we have Melissa Snavely with her story of what she learned about courage from The Wizard of Oz and her mother. There's this wonderful scene in the movie The Wizard of Oz, right, when the cowardly lion is trying to build up his courage to do something really important for Dorothy. I'm sure you all remember the scene. And this is the, the king of the jungle, right? And he's afraid of his own tail. You know that tail that walks around behind him, kind of flops around behind him the entire movie? Well, I was trying to summon some of that courage myself when I was standing outside my mother's um, hospital room door. My sister had called us all earlier that day and said, it's time to come. When the doctors told us that the kindest thing we could do for my mother was to let her go, we ended up spending that next week sitting in twos and threes and sometimes all four of us in a room with her together. If you were really clever, you could get up really early in the morning or stay really late at night and have her all to yourself. Turns out that there would be no fairy godmother with a magic wand that week. There would be no bucket of water to melt her sickness away. The flying monkeys had been let loose. The hourglass was ticking. And it turns out that the cure for her cancer earlier in her life would be what took her in the end. But you know, it wasn't all sad and, and horrible, maybe as I'm making it sound right now. There are actually some happy, you know, kind of funny moments. When they moved my mother from the hospital to the nursing home where she would get hospice care for the last few days of her life, we all went to the nursing home to meet her to make sure she got settled in okay. And when the ambulance showed up, they wheeled her out on a gurney and she was sitting up completely lucid and, and happy and smiling at all of us. And she seemed so thrilled to see us all there. She wasn't sure why we were there, but it was wonderful to see us as if she had awoken from a strange and wonderful dream. There was the night I sat with her by myself and I reflected about who this person was. So my dad had died years before, and after that, my mother had this very cool, calm, collected exterior to her. 
But as an adult looking back, I thought, you know, she was probably more like the Wizard of Oz. You know, when he's standing behind the curtain, he's working all those levers and he's screaming a loud voice and there's smoke everywhere. And he's just trying to convince everyone and himself too that he's got everything under control. Well, my mom was 40 when she became a widow. She had four kids, a cancer patient, but somehow she kept her shit together. I don't know how, but she did. There would be her last night, too, when my sister and I sat in her room in these very uncomfortable chairs, listening to her ragged breathing, and wishing the only thing we had to worry about was lions and tigers and bears. <laughs> but you know what? There was also a rainbow. There was a effing rainbow. Uh, we were all gathered at our family's favorite beach, throwing flowers into the ocean. And this rainbow appeared in this very stormy sky, as if my mom was telling us something. And we were all just trying to accept the unacceptable. But I didn't know any of that as I stood outside her hospital room door. When my sister had called, I had tidied up loose ends at work and at home. I'd packed a bag and driven five and a half hours to get there. But would I have the courage to walk across that threshold into her room? Understanding that when I did, everything would suddenly become very black and white. And there would be no undoing the knowing. It turns out I am, and I will always be my mother's daughter. So I clicked my heels and I walked into her room. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from David McVeigh, who told a story about the time a friend saved his life and the sense of obligation it left him with. My name is Dave McVeigh, and I grew up in Western Maryland. And in January of 1983, some friends of mine and I were staying at a cabin on a lake there. The lake was frozen, and five of us decided to walk across it just to see how long it would take to get there. We knew how long it took to swim there in the summertime, but it's about a half mile or so. And so we split up, two of us in front and three about uh, 50 yards behind. Well, you can't go on a hike without taking along a camera, and so I had my friend's expensive Nikon camera with a 200 millimeter lens. That'll play a role in a minute. And when we were most of the way to the other side, perfectly straight line. I came to an area that was not much bigger than this area that I'm standing in right now, where the ice was a decidedly different color. I was in the middle of that decidedly different colored ice with a man next to me. And my soon-to-be former best friend from 50 yards behind said, hey, McVeigh, jump up and down. See how thick it is. Well, at that time, I had brown hair, not gray hair, and I'd never turned down a dare. And so I jumped up one time. And when I went through, I stuck my arms out like this, and that stopped me getting any wetter than I already did. At huge risk to his own life, this guy saved mine. He immediately got down on his stomach, reached his hand out to me, and pulled. And my mitten went flying. And then he stuck his arm out to me and we locked at elbows. And I started, I'm a pretty good swimmer, and I started swimming up. But I had heavy wool clothing on with boots that had just filled with two gallons of 33 degree water. And the camera caught on the bottom of the ice. 
And so I took that camera and I threw it, dropped it down to the bottom of the lake. And I started telling as the other people came up, but stayed on the stronger ice. I told them, look, tell, call the, you know, go ashore there. If you can find anybody home, this is where we are. Call for help. I was di directing my own rescue efforts. I said, there may be some rowboats there that you can get some oars or maybe a ladder, anything. Finally, on about the fourth try, when I got up onto the ice, it didn't break away. My hands were covered in blood because I'd been slicing away at the ice. And I got onto the stronger ice after my friend had gotten further away. And then I jogged back. And uh, it was a pretty hard run because I weighed about 50 pounds more from all the water that I had. About a year or two later, and I thought often of how I owed my life to this guy, I thought, I hope that sometime I get a chance to pay that back somehow. And a year or two later, I was at a Christmas Eve party, and it was with a bunch of stuffed shirts, none of them that I liked. Do you ever go to a party when you got on a suit and think you're going to have a good time? <laughs> that doesn't happen that way, and that was the kind of party I was at. And it was in a fairly crowded neighborhood, and everybody in this party, and there were dozens of people there, were all that way. And I hear these people in another room come barging in, and they were wearing sort of bowling team jackets, you know? They, they had purple with yellow letters with the name of the team. And they're screaming, somebody, the house across the street's on fire, and there's a woman inside. There's my chance. And when I got to the house across the street, we were only five or six blocks away from the fire station. When I got to the house across the street, it was, the, the first floor was completely in fire. And uh, I couldn't see anybody inside there but I knew that a person was in there. And the car that I had driven was blocking the way that the fireman would use to go in through one of the doors. So the first thing I did was back that car out of the way so the fireman could get in. And then I tried to get in, but I couldn't. There was no way to do it. And as I think today of how that lady was brought out in the middle of the street. This is 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve. Church bells are starting to ring. They brought her body out. I guess she was still, actually she was still alive. And somebody laid a, a blanket on this cold asphalt. And I saw her body there with the bright lights of the fire truck, the red lights flashing on it. Smoke and steam was coming from her body, and I smelled that. And I think about the courage that my friend, by saving my life, showed me. And I look in the mirror. I look at the mirror from time to time, and I think with absolute shame about how I was glad that I had a good excuse for not going into that room not going into that house, 
having a good reason for not risking my life any further than I already did to save hers. All the winners from this year's Open Mic Story Slam events will return in November to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York. Updates on our upcoming events and tickets for purchase are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter, at York Story Slam, as well as on Facebook, and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. We hope to see you on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Catherine Roquet. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson.